Good afternoon. My name is uh, Trudeau Lemons. I'm a professor at the Faculty of Law to the Cross Appointment in the Dalalana School of Public Health of the University of uh, Toronto. So I'm very happy uh, for the invitation by Marcus. Thank you, Marcus, and the people at the Center for Ethics to talk about the issue of clinical triage protocol development in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, and uh, with the provocative uh, subtitle, ins adding insult to injury for people with disabilities. I'll say something more about that title a little bit later. Uh, my talk is uh, primarily based on, uh, on a, uh, an op-ed and editorial that I wrote with Roxanne Miketiuk uh, for the uh, CBC, which uh, is published on its website, and also a short paper that we uh, uh, developed for the um, uh, journal Health Law in Canada. So I certainly want to acknowledge uh, uh, Roxanne's work, uh, which also served us in uh, providing comments to an open letter which was written by Arch Disability Rights Centre uh, to the um, um, Human Rights Commissioner of Ontario in the context of this pandemic, which I will also say something about briefly later. So what are we talking about uh, today? We're talking about clinical care triage protocols, which facilitate decision-making if and when surges in infection rates overwhelm hospitals, intensive care units, or ICUs, and make it impossible to provide access to potentially life-saving care or equipment, for example, access to life-saving ventilators. This is the issue, the kind of symbolic issue that I will focus on, although uh, clinical triage protocols do more than deciding on access to ventilators. So, they decide on providing access to ventilators for people who normally all would qualify and decide who will and who will not qualify in those pandemic circumstances. The protocol set out a procedure for decision-making, specify criteria and underlying values that determine who will be given priority access, and thus basically a better chance of staying alive than others. They prevent that decisions like that are being made by physicians on the fly. They lessen the ethical and emotional burden for physicians when physicians can no longer offer each patient what they would normally feel duty bound to provide, which may lead to agonizing clashes of commitment. The use of independent interdisciplinary triage committees helps to reduce the chance also that individual preferences, personal connections of, of uh, healthcare providers, and biases, conscious or unconscious biases, influence the process. Several Canadian provinces have drafted triage protocols, including uh, Quebec and Ontario. And the Canadian Medical Association also issued a general framework recently, providing general guidance that may influence uh, policy making across Canada. Um, it has to be emphasized that it looks now unlikely that these clinical trial pr protocols which uh, enter into force or which have to be used at the time when there is acute shortage of ventilators will have to be used in the near future in the Canadian context at least. But we cannot exclude that with the new uh, uprising of the pandemic that this will be the case. So uh, the issue remains important. In a recent uh, BMJ blog, uh, British Medical Journal, British Medical Journal blog, John Cogan and Dady Regmi argue convincingly why it's important that policies like that are prepared by those in charge of organizing uh, 
the healthcare system itself and not just by local hospitals. First, they argue that very different triage approaches can be reasonably defended on the basis of ethical principles and legal principles. But allowing different protocols in the same jurisdictions raises concerns about consistency and equity. We don't want to have a situation, for example, in Toronto, whereby a patient, a patient could be refused access to a ventilator, say, when by pure accident, the patient goes to Princess Margaret Hospital, whereas the same person could have had their life saved um, if transported to St. Michael's Hospital. Secondly, they say that they point out that local hospital practices, including the practices about who they prioritize for what type of care, has also uh, have also broader systemic implications. And thirdly, they also simply emphasize that there is a need for clarity and consistency in an area that is fraught with legal and ethical uncertainty. Think, for example, about the fact that we are dealing with policies that may suggest that people can be withdrawn from a, from a ventilator without consent, which in the Canadian context would run counter to some uh, recent uh, Supreme Court cases. Healthcare providers and institutional uh, settings require what they call authoritative guidance. Planning for this unique pandemic dilemma is therefore the responsible and laudable thing to do and can hardly be seen as an insulting or injurious uh, two terms that feature prov provocatively and intended, intentionally so in the title of my presentation. So why did the disability rights community mobilize against several triage protocols, both here in Canada and internationally? What does the rhetorical insult that I refer to here stand for? What is the injurious context in which the triage debate, in my view, plays out? This is what I will briefly discuss here, starting with the irritation caused and the concern caused by the triage protocols themselves. The tri triage protocol debate has a particular symbolic meaning in the context of the broader impact of COVID-19 on the disability community, which is why I will briefly sketch at the end and really very briefly also what I would call the contextual injury. So first, let me say something more about what I call the insults. First, there is a procedural insult or issue. Triage protocols are fundamentally about who gets the best chance to live. They influence life and death decisions. People are categorized not just based on objective clinical criteria and facts, but also on the basis of superimposed values and underlying ethical concepts, which are directly related to some of our most fundamental human rights. I will say something about these, or I will at least touch on some of these later. Think about concepts like the right to life, security of the person, and equality rights. Decisions in our healthcare system about who lives and who dies should not be left up to medical and bioethics experts, but need to be submitted to publicly accountable democratic decision-making. And because some people, such as elderly and people with disabilities, are under most protocols disproportionately affected, it's key that they have a prominent seat at the table. Dealing with disability rights and elderly rights and the rights actually of others who may be uh, disproportionately affected should not be just a politically correct afterthought. It should be built into the policy-making structures themselves. The need for representation is increasingly emphasized in human rights discourse. 
recent letter about the Ontario Triage Protocol by the Ontario Human Rights Commission to the Minister of Health, when uh, the Commission reacted to uh, concerns expressed also by Arch Disability Rights Centre and others. This minute, the, uh, the letter noted that the pandemic policymaking requires representation from vulnerable groups and, quote, people most affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. This has actually in, it also been put forward in ethics guidance document. The ethical framework for uh, pandemic planning developed by colleagues at the Joint Center for Bioethics in the wake of SARS in 2005 emphasizes the need for procedural justice, including transparency, inclusiveness, and accountability. It explicitly recommended that there should be, uh, quote, constructive public discussion about these choices. It is in light of that very unfortunate that precisely in the province with its historical experience of SARS and its active debate around pandemic planning, that we now have to be that the protocol now has to be finalized in the midst of the stress of a pandemic and that the drafting process has been surrounded by secrecy rather than transparency. Ontario's draft protocol, for example, only became the topic of public debate following a journalist discussion in the Toronto Star and a subsequent public letter by Arts Disability Rights Centre endorsed, endorsed by major disability rights organizations and many individuals. No version of the protocol was officially available for public discussion. But although the government then maintained in response to the criticism that it was just a draft protocol, that nothing had been decided, the document had already been widely distributed to healthcare institutions and uh, some emergency physicians. This hiding from public scrutiny and debate only fueled concerns, which connects also to what I will discuss further the broader context in which this debate plays out, which explains the mistrust within the disability rights community about this type of policy. The privileged distribution of a policy with such an implications within the healthcare system suggests in a way how this was seen as just one of the several urgent clinical issues to be addressed in the context of the pandemic. An issue which could appropriately in this view be decided by medical and bioethics experts. And in my view, it reflects perhaps how increasingly easily ethics becomes integrated within the medical system as a form of technical expertise without sufficient acknowledgement of its unique multifaceted nature and its connection to broader values and human rights and how ethical theories really determine what kind of ethical position people can take on a multiple uh, on multiple issues in a very different way. Ethics becomes a tool, become, is no longer thereby a tool to question and query values underpinning a medical policy, but ethics becomes some kind of justif justificatory instrument within the uh, context of policymaking. It's interesting to note how this idea of pandemic triaging as an issue that can be objectively addressed was also reflected in the in initial media coverage around the triage policy. Triage decisions were initially discussed on CBC's The Current and TVO's The Agenda, for example, exclusively with medical and ethics experts at the table. But surprisingly, 
two of the three experts on the agenda, for example, on the agenda panel had not even seen the Toronto Protocol because it was not yet publicly available, even though the existence of the policy was clearly the very impetus of the public conversation uh, by, by TVO. I have to say that TVO did organize to its credit a follow-up conversation with David Lepofsky and Wendy Porch, two disability rights advocates, and the CBC and other medical outlets also published op-ed pieces tackling the issue from a human rights and disability rights perspective, including an op-ed piece that we, uh, Roxanne Mikituk and I wrote. So much for the procedural issue. Let me say something no, more now about the substantive, substantive in issue, the substantive part of the UNSO. What is the more substantial concern? As mentioned, clinical triage protocols put forward criteria and ethical principles to determine who will have priority access to ventilators, who may be removed, who may in some situations be a priori excluded. Not surprisingly, most of the clinical triage policies have a strong utilitarian flavor. Pandemic triage protocols emphasize the efficient use of resources to save as many lives as possible. But other principles, ethical principles, such as fairness, proportionality, reciprocity also play a role. Efficiency, yes, but not at all costs. Proportionality, for example, a principle which we also find back in our charter review of legislation requires that triage measures are not imposing more restrictions on access for individuals than necessary to achieve the goal of saving as many lives as possible. Decisions also have to be made about who will have access if two patients have an equal chance of survival. So their sufficient efficiency obviously doesn't solve the dilemma. Many protocols, including the Ontario one, impose for those situations a lottery system to give people an equal chance of, of access. If only efficiency would matter, first come, first serve could be used in these circumstances. But protocols rightly emphasize that first come, first serve would be unfair towards people who live, for example, more remotely, who, have, who may have trouble obtaining adequate transportation and timely uh, transportation, or those who become infected later. Current protocols have in common that they do not refer to the value and quality of a person's life. This has not always been the case. One of the controversial historical examples of resource allocation in medicine involved decision-making by the so-called Seattle GOT Committee in the 1960s, which determined who had priority access to an artificial kidney by weighing not only people's age, but also their marital status, income, education, and even past and future contributions to society. It's easy to see how this could could involve hugely problematic value judgment. So it's good that the current protocols do not include these value judgments. The Ontario protocol and the CMA framework emphasize that socioeconomic factors should play also no role. There is also no explicit deprioritization of people based on the sole criterion of having a disability uh, even though a few protocols in other jurisdictions explicitly, for example, they deprioritized people with uh, cognitive disabilities, which led to significant human rights complaints. But that doesn't mean that there are no concerns from a disability rights perspective. Many of the triage documents, including the Ontario one, 
and certainly the CMA framework, go beyond looking at whether patients will likely survive the acute COVID-19 related problem for which they require a ventilator. Protocols that go beyond the prognosis of immediate survival tend to disproportionately affect people with disabilities. They are inevitably more speculative. Prognosis of longer term survival are more difficult and they thereby also create the risk that ableist presumptions about survival chances or quality of life after ICU treatment seep into clinical evaluations, even though quality of life, as mentioned, is not explicitly included in the policy framework. There is a reason for the concern by people with disabilities uh, about this. Many people with disabilities and their families have experiences in the healthcare system of receiving often well-intended suggestions that further intensive care is not in their best interest or experiences of getting a do not resuscitate order on their chart or more recently getting the message that medical aid in dying is their best available option. Throughout their lives they often have had to struggle to overcome prejudices reflecting an often unconscious perception of the quality and the value of their life with disability. Policies that leave more space for impressionistic interpretation are therefore a reasonable cause for concern. The CMA framework goes further than the Ontario Protocol in that respect. It suggests prioritizing people with, quote, a reasonable life expectancy and among those with equal survival chances, those with more life years left would be prioritized. The concept of life years left is based on the notion that fairness requires giving people an equal chance of experiencing what is so referred to as a full life. A 60 years patient is already closer to having had a full life in this, in this view, whereas the patient of 30 still deserves, deserves a chance to develop one in the coming decades. But one can easily see how particularly, particularly elderly people, but depending on the implementation of this concept of life years left, also, also many people with disabilities risk thereby getting the short end of the stick. In fact, depending on how broad the criteria to determine life years left are, all people more negatively impacted by social determinants of health including people living in poverty, homeless people, refugees, indigenous people, and otherwise marginalized populations could be disproportionately affected because of shorter life expectancy and existence of many comorbidities. Clearly, fairness could be seen to require a very different approach. For example, one that would take into consideration pre-existing social disadvantage and inequity precisely to prioritize people in order to compensate for the injustice they have faced more generally in their life. In other words, to enable them to have a fuller life. One could also argue that a person of 60 who has for decades, for example, faced major challenges in life and is finally coping with these challenges better, still deserves an equal chance for a full life as a 14 year old person whose life has always been privileged. The Ontario draft protocol does not refer to your life years left as a concept for decision making. So in my view is better in that respect. 
but concerns for people with disabilities arise in the determination in the, in the Ontario Protocol of who has lower survival chances. The protocol identifies three different scenarios of resource scarcity, from less to more severe. The more severe the shortage, the broader the exclusion of people on the basis of their higher mortality risk. The protocol provides various examples of clinical situations associated with high risk of mortality and also reproduces commonly used risk tables that reflect broad clinical experiences and statistical estimates of, of survival chances. While the protocol focuses on short-term survival, it explicitly states so, it clearly goes beyond survival in the ICU, so in the hospital for the uh, specific treatment of uh, COVID-19 with a respirator. It includes the likelihood of survival for some months after ICU treatment. And as I mentioned, the further we move beyond discharge from the ICU, the more a policy risks disproportionately impacting on elderly and people with disabilities, and the more it leaves room for interpretation. Of particular concern is that some specific conditions are explicitly given scores that lead to immediate deprioritization under the Ontario Protocol. Having severe forms of progressive cognitive impairment, think about Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative, neurodegenerative diseases such as Parkinson's and ALS, and some level of frailty due to a progressive illness results in scores that deprioritize people with those conditions from, uh, for ventilation access. Under the most severe shortage scenarios, for example, even people with moderate forms of these conditions would be excluded from receiving ventilation. The Ontario Protocol also recommends withdrawal of ventilator support of those at higher mortality risk in order to prioritize uh, those at lower risk. These exclusions reflect a clinical assessment. They are based on estimates of the specific risk of mortality for people with these conditions. It is also important to acknowledge that the triage protocol explicitly mentions that cl clinical judgment in individual cases should complement triage decisions and may compensate for a broad assessment based on the statistics. But there is reason to be concerned that reliance on broad statistical categories will lead to a system systematic exclusion even when some people could fall outside of the statistical predictions. Even though statistics tend to be seen as purely objective and reliable, we are dealing with significant uncertainty, particularly when it comes to COVID-19, and thus value-based evaluations of risk will be made. How representative are the risks associated with other clinical situations for COVID-19? We do not fully know. Risk estimates are in flux and need to be constantly adjusted the more we learn about what happens with people who are receiving ventilation in the context of COVID-19. For the time being, the data are in that respect, in fact, not very positive for anyone in need of ventilation. The study of three months ago, three months ago of patients requiring ventilation for COVID-19 suggested an overall mortality rate of 80%, even though 
recent reports are slightly more positive. There is also uncertainty when applying the data to people with comorbidities or other cl clinical factors. How the existing mortality data related to ventilation for COVID-19 maps onto other data based on ventilation for these conditions will likely remain unclear for some time. All this to say that we have to realize that the use of broad statistical predictions of mortality to decide that individuals will not receive access to a ventilator and even more so that some could be removed from one is not based on rock solid objective scientific data in our estimates. Equality law with its emphasis on substantive equality should inspire us in this context. Under Canadian equality law, for example, adjudicators are skeptical of the use of broad categorizations to deny people who belong to, to um, so-called protected groups access to services to which others have access. This includes the use of standardized tests that have a disproportionate impact on these people. There is no case law that relates to a pandemic situation, but the cases that we know involve the use of tests designed by experts and for which scientific justifications are provided for their use. We can think here, for example, of the Mayron case, which involved um, a workplace qualification testing for forest firefighters, which was deemed by the Supreme Court to have a discriminatory impact on women, even though the test itself was set on the basis of objective fitness criteria uh, developed by scientists. Or I can think of the Grismer case, case about the systemic exclusion, systematic exclusion of people with a loss of peripheral vision from obtaining a driving license. So a certain percentage of loss of peripheral vision led in BC to the exclusion of some people from uh, obtaining a driving license. And here again, the court ruled that more individualized tests should be allowed to allow, to allow in, uh, in a way, Mr. Grismer to escape the statistical uh, risk-based data about his ability to drive in order to allow him to obtain a license and to fully participate in uh, that aspect of uh, social life. While decisions need to be made to prioritize the allocation of scarce resources to individuals more likely to benefit from treatment, we should, uh, is the message that we get from that human rights case law, we should avoid using all too easily criteria that disproportionately exclude people with disabilities. We should allow them to individually escape the statistics that would exclude them from life-sustaining treatment. So what should clinical trials protocols do to avoid or diminish the risk of discriminatory practices? In recent op-ed, the recent op-ed that Roxanne Mikitik and I wrote, we made a couple of very general recommendations, which other people uh, in, have also made in the literature. First, we recommend that key ethical and human rights obligations towards people with disabilities be explicitly affirmed in clinical triage policies. The explicit affirmation of the need to avoid discrimination should alert triage committees and healthcare providers to the need to be particularly vigilant to avoid that people with disabilities are abandoned based on faulty and potentially ableist presumptions and stereotypes about living with 
a disability. This reaffirmation has a strong symbolic and expressive meaning in law. We recommend that protocol should only focus on short-term survival of the clinical event for which the ventilator is required without any speculation of longer-term survival. And we also suggest that exploring accommodation options, uh, uh, that we also, we also suggest exploring accommodation options. For example, accommodation may require providing people with disabilities additional time on a ventilator if a protocol uh, uh, puts forward a general cutoff time, number of days that people uh, would be kept on a, on a respirator before they would be disconnected. Other interesting forms of accommodation should be considered. Uh, I can think here of a recent paper which was published just, just yesterday or the day before yesterday by Andrew Peterson and colleagues in the British Medical Journal. They give examples of how protocols can reduce the risk of indirect discrimination by, for example, using the what they call a weighting triage course with an area deprivation index that accounts for social determinants of mental health, which may disadvantage particular people. Or secondly, to include patient advocates from disadvantaged communities in triage teams that have to make decisions about uh, triage. One third thing they propose, and I'm just checking my time here, um, is um, they propose the periodic auditing of triage decisions to quickly detect and ameliorate indirect discrimination. So monitoring, obtaining data, which is also something actually that the Ontario Human Rights Commission strongly emphasizes. Other issue, issues also merit further discussion from a disability rights perspective. I cannot, I cannot go into the details here of all of them, but let me mention some. Mention some. The Ontario Draft Protocol rightly emphasizes the need for good co communication about options, which ideally should happen long before difficult decisions about access to ventilators have to be made. It makes sense indeed to promote discussion with persons at higher risk of mortality in advance of hospitalization. Patients or their substitute decision makers should be provided with relevant risk information to understand all of their options. They may very, very reasonably, for example, decide to avoid invasive ventilation or even to avoid hospitalization and to opt to remain in a more comfortable and familiar environment when their survival chances are extremely slim. The development of advanced directives may be helpful in this context. At the same time, there are concerns that under the guise of communication, elderly people and people with disabilities may indeed be pressured to forego a chance of survival based on all too easy presumptions about the value of their remaining life or their likelihood of survival of hospitalization. This brings us back to the experience of people with disabilities. Here also a strong affirmation of equal respect for people's right to opt for life-saving interventions, regardless of disability or age, seems important. Let me conclude my talk by saying something briefly about the injurious context in which the debate occurs. I was talking about adding insults to injury. But what was the broader context here? It is indeed the existence of a historical and contemporary wound that explains why people with disabilities may perceive many triage protocols as, in a way, insulting or, or, or harming. 
I already mentioned the historical mistrust and experience of challenges people with disabilities face in obtaining equal access to healthcare. Existing inequities are clearly heightened in this pandemic, which disproportionately impacts on people who are homeless, institutionalized or incarcerated, elderly and disabled, and members of indigenous communities or racialized minorities, just to mention the most important communities that are clearly impacted. Many of the policy responses such as physical distancing and isolation rules impose a hugely disproportionate burden on people with disabilities. For example, people in institutional settings or people who require personal assistance. Even the use of masks and protective gear in healthcare settings may create challenges. For example, for people who are deaf or hard of hearing and rely on lip reading. Very little attention is paid to technological measures that could compensate for this communication problem, which can very profoundly impact on the quality of care people receive. The staggering infection and mortality rates in long-term care homes further expose long-term neglect of institutional settings and also a lack of investment in community living programs and concretely also now a lack of prioritization of prevention, screening and treatment for COVID-19 within settings in which many people with disabilities live. From a disability rights perspective, measures focusing on prevention, detection, and adequate on-site care, including by facilitating and facilitating and organizing safe family and personal support, are clearly more important at this point than ventilator protocols. Keep in mind that we're not yet in a situation where they actually have to be used in the Canadian context. Ventilators are also a last resort. Many people will simply not benefit from them considering the high mortality rate associated with their use. But still, clinical triage policies related to ventilator support have, it seems, a uniquely symbolic meaning. They represent, in a way, an ultimate effort society is willing to make to save the life of its very sick citizens, even when chances of survival are slim or limited. Practices that disproportionately deprive people with disabilities from this chance of survival deepen the wound caused by the pandemic, caused by society's failure in protecting people with disabilities from its devastating impact, and caused by broader systemic neglect of the equality rights of people with disabilities. For the reason I laid out here, provinces and the Canadian Medical Association should be lauded for drafting triage policies to facilitate challenging pandemic decision-making, but they should do so with transparency and invite public input, particularly by those disproportionately affected by the policies. Above all, triage policies and practices should live up to human rights standards. It always requires some effort to safeguard human rights, but it can take a pandemic to force our hand and lay bare the depth of our commitment. 